They ask a question. Teacher, they declare a statement. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. You got to remember that pride at the core is egocentric, right? It is self-centered. It is idolatry. It is the worship of self. And it really does have a blinding effect. And if you need a proof text, well, here you go. Right here, the Lord Jesus Christ just predicts his, his passion, right? And they say, Lord, we want you to do something for us. They completely look past what Jesus just shared. And Jesus graciously responds and asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I want you to think about this question and how you would answer it. If Jesus were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? If the sky was the limit and Jesus were to ask you personally, what do you want me to do for you? That is a very revealing question. Because with it would expose who we are, where our hearts are at before him. It really does. The answer to this question, not only in the case of James and John, but in ours as well, reveals our true motives. It reveals whether we seek our own glory or whether we seek the glory of God. And by the way, this is the same question that Jesus is going to ask blind Bartimaeus down in Mark 10, verse 51, just down below. But the responses differ greatly. Bartimaeus asks for faith. James and John ask for fame. Bartimaeus wants to follow Jesus on the way. James and John want to sit with him in glory. Look at verse 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. You may recall, it was just recently back in Mark 9, that Peter, James, and John were the three men who got to witness the transfiguration. So seeing Christ in his glory is on the brain, right? They, they've seen it, un, a glimpse of it anyway, unveiled. And since that time, James and John have encountered a math problem. They have. Three people, two seats. That's really it. Three people, two seats. And they wanted to be the ones who were recognized as most important. They wanted the prestige. They wanted the seats right next to, to, to Christ. And so never mind Peter. Okay? Besides their bros, brothers, same father, Zebedee. And it's later in Mark 12, 38 and 39, Jesus is. Well, he's going to warn them, beware of the scribes who like chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. These will receive greater condemnation. The same pitfall of pride continued to infect the heart of the disciples, and they wanted to be noticed by men. They were being tempted to serve their own glory, their own position, and prestige. And this is the leaven of Herod that Jesus warned about also in Mark 8.15. And they needed to repent of it. And so do I. And so do we all 
How are you tempted to serve your own glory? Are you serving the Lord when you're serving others? Or is your service self-serving? I want to encourage everybody who can to stay for our second hour teaching today as Pastor Isaiah teaches on pleasing God. Because in many ways it serves as a filter to make sure that we are serving and pleasing God first and living for his glory and not our own. The paradoxes under our second point will also provide more depth into this problem. But for now, we need to see the other two pitfalls as well. Pitfall number one, pride seeks personal recognition. Pitfall number two, pride presumes upon God's will. Look at our Lord's response starting in verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Stop here for a moment so we can just put this request into perspective. The Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, right? So, question for you. Who might be seated to his right and left in glory? Got any good guesses out there? Don't have to be too smart to figure that one out. We know for certain that God the Father will be on Christ's left because four times in God's word, it says that Jesus will be seated at God's right hand in Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, and even in the Old Testament in Psalm 1.10, which Jesus quotes in Luke 22.69, it, it, it affirms this. I chased that rabbit in my study this week. And though I didn't find the answer to who's going to be seated on the other side, come on, work with me here. Got a pretty, got a pretty good guess, don't you? James and John have no idea what they're asking. And Jesus helps them understand this by saying it out loud. Can you imagine when James and John, when they took their last breath, when they went to glory? When they saw the way that the stage was set up, when they saw the seats, who was seated next to Jesus Christ in glory? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And you've heard that phrase that there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, this is subject for debate when we consider the sons of thunder, okay? So what does Jesus do? Where does he go from here? He doesn't make a big deal. Again, he's so humble. He's so gracious. They lack understanding. They see now that which they didn't see. Same is true in our lives. Eventually, you know, sometimes we see things eventually that we didn't see, and we can look back and say, boy, that was a stupid request. That was a stupid prayer request. It really was. In verses 38 and 39, Jesus strategically points them back to his passion prediction which they just overlooked verse 38 continues when jesus says are you able to drink the cup that i drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which i am baptized and they said to him we are able and jesus said to them the cup that i drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which i am baptized 
James and John are presuming on God's will. This is another pitfall of pride. Pride blinds us from seeing and understanding the will of God. And Jesus is letting them know that the only, the, the, the only throne that he is going to be set upon when he goes to Jerusalem is a wooden one. The only crown that's going to be placed on his head when he goes to Jerusalem is going to be a crown of thorns. The only people that are going to be to his right and to his left are going to be two criminals. And so what does he do? He uses the metaphors of a cup and baptism to signify his coming passion and death. And both the cup and baptism reflect Christ's complete immersion into his suffering servanthood. As for the disciples, the cup and baptism, which Christ refers to, it could refer to their martyrdom, which later church tradition holds to, right? Because we know how their lives ended. All of them with the exception of John, which we'll share about more later. But it could also refer to any kind of suffering for their faith, including the persecutions that were just recently mentioned back in verse 30. What we need to do is make sure that we don't take the symbolism so far because only Jesus endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners when he died on the cross. Okay? Obviously, martyrdom and other forms of suffering of the disciples did not serve the same redemptive purpose. Here, Jesus did no more than ask if they were willing to suffer and die as he would, as he would do. And what do they say? They naively, how quickly, right? Glory on the brain, glory on the brain. How quickly did they respond? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, Lord. We can, we can, we can do it. They were quick to claim the benefits of the kingdom, but slow to hear the costs of participating in it. And again, the pitfall of pride has them presuming that it's God's will. Okay? And they, they need to see that their presumption isn't uh, is short-sighted, right? It's not just about uh, glory, but it's also about following Christ in suffering and in servanthood. And Jesus concludes by confirming the impossibility of the request in verse 40 when he says, to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Yes, such a humble response from our Lord. Even in his refusals of our request, God reveals his humility and grace. James Edwards writes, How wretched we should be if God granted every request for which we foolishly prayed. The same is true of Jesus' first disciples, end quote. Our pride presumes on God's will, just as it did here for James and John. And before you know it, we can be praying, my will, instead of not thy will be done, okay? Important lesson for us, Lord willing. And that, that, that impacts everything in which we pray for according to his will, Right? And his purpose. 
That's a big shift sometimes for some of us in our prayer life because we can try to impose what we want onto the will of God. It's a reminder for us right here. Well, there's a third pitfall of pride that comes in verse 41. Pride promotes disunity with others. Notice the impact that James and John's pride had on the other disciples. Look at verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. This word indignant can also be translated incensed or irate. They were deeply displeased, deeply offended. And this, my friends, is what pride produces. And this is why James 3.14 and verse 16 both say, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. It's the result of pride. There is disorder and disunity. It's what pride promotes. And it doesn't discriminate, does it? We see its destructive force all around us. We truly do. Pride can destroy personal friendships. Pride can destroy a marriage. If people are too proud to regularly confess their sin and ask their spouse or ask their friends for forgiveness, if you aren't willing to die to yourself to preserve unity, Pride wins. Pride can destroy your workplace when jealousy and selfish ambition come into play. And my idea is the one that gets lifted up. And I, I get credit. Make sure that I get credit for what took place, right? It's egocentric. It's, it's self-centered. And there's battles. I'm preaching to the choir here. You know it. You see it in your workplace. Pride destroys talented sports teams as players are more concerned about their own stats than the success of a team. See that happen. Right? Everyone's, you know, you hear about compliments about teams that are actually doing well. And they say, you know, boy, the UCLA Bruins are really playing unselfish basketball. Which is true right now. That's a shout-out for Francis. Francis, I just had to throw that in there. And all the UCLA folks, okay. But, but, but we see this, but what about the teams where you have that ego-tistical franchise player who is concerned about getting the stats that they'll need so that they make the all-star team, and you see that they carry a losing record. We see that. Pride can rip a nation apart. There's one for you. Just this week, I saw one politician boldly speak out on the House floor saying that never in our nation's history have both parties been so defensive and unwilling to work together on the problems we face because sides are too concerned about who will get credit in the end. What is the cause of the disorder? What is the cause of their disunity? Look at it. It's right there. 
Pride. Pride. Pride can destroy a church or a ministry within the church when self-willed leaders or self-willed members resist the input and influence of others. Pride can puff up and cause churches and ministries to look down upon each other, or worse yet, develop a competitive spirit. How many people you got at your church? How big is it? Oh, yeah? What, what, what do you guys do? What's your, what's your men's ministry all about? Right? It's pride. It's pride. So what are the answers to these pitfalls of pride? And why are they important? And do you and I exhibit the same crass, self-seeking attitudes as James and John? Listen to the musing of one theologian who wrote, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. And if we're all honest, we all have aspects of pride that prioritize ourselves over other people. It's all of us. And so how did the Lord shepherd the disciples through their pride? This brings us to the paradoxes in verses 42 through 45 and the second critical insight in our passage and in your outline. It will bless us to understand the paradoxes of servanthood. Jesus sees the reaction of the other disciples who are probably angered more for the fact that James and John beat them to the punch actually did what they really wanted to do within their own hearts. And so he uses the entire incident to teach lessons on humility and servanthood rather than positions and posturing. Look at verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. This is a synopsis of the world's leadership style and the measurement of the world. Those who have the most authority are those who have the most servants underneath them to serve them. In other words, the way up is the way over. Authority over people determines who the great leaders are. And Jesus is about to turn this concept on its head when he shares the first paradox. A paradox being something that appears like a contradiction, but it expresses a truth. The first paradox is, let servanthood, not authority, define your standard of greatness. In other words, the way up is the way down. Look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. 
Jesus is so gracious to them. You see what he did there? He believed the best. You see that? Right there? In verse 43, he believes the best. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, we need that instruction too for our own hearts, right? Just, just believe the best. Believe the best about your brother and sister in the Lord. Do that. That changes everything. It will change your ministry. It will, in many ways, bring them to repentance. And it's like heaping hot coals if they did something that is offended. But you still believe the best about that person. It's powerful. And our Lord leads by example. And he does this even though, like many people today, the disciples are making the mistake of following the wrong examples. Instead of modeling themselves after Jesus, they were admiring the glory and authority of Roman rulers, men who loved position and authority. And no doubt the Pharisees who loved to be served and honored They had a negative influence on them as well. And Jesus is saying it isn't about how high you ascend by the world's standard or even religious standards, but how low you can grow in humility and servanthood that will determine your greatness. It's like spiritual limbo. How low can you grow? Good little thought to keep in mind. I thought about that in my study. I was like, that is silly, but it works. How low, hey, friend, how low can you grow? Really? Because that's going to determine your growth. Not as your stature comes up and as you get honor and as you get all these accolades. How low can you grow? That will determine your greatness in being used by the Lord. And each of us, needs to ask ourselves this question. How do I measure greatness? Think about that for a moment. How do I measure greatness? If servanthood doesn't define our standard of greatness, then what does? A great athlete? A great scholar? A great scientist, a great musician, a great entrepreneur. What is it? The world, it deceives us and tempts us to use its measurements. And servanthood is the ultimate measuring stick. How low can you grow? And by the way, Jesus is sharing, it's an identical, virtually an identical lesson that he shared after his last passion prediction in Mark 9, verses 33 through 37. Jesus basically says the same thing. But he did something that was unique, and I want to take our attention back to it. You'll recall that Jesus picked up a child. Do you remember that? And he used a child as an object lesson. And in that study, we learned that in the ancient world, children were viewed as insignificant. They really were. And the child represented any helpless person, especially a humble fellow believer whom the true disciple is to receive. 
Jesus does this because in the ancient world, serving a child wasn't going to get you much recognition. Certainly wasn't going to have any impact on your, your leadership status, which was the whole point. When you serve a child of God, a fellow believer, there might not be any benefit or prestige from the world's view whatsoever. But in God's eyes, and according to the words that he shares in Mark chapter 9, it is the same as welcoming or receiving not only Jesus, but Jesus says, but welcoming the one who, he who sent me. Welcomes the Father as well. And this is where true greatness lies. And the second paradox in verse 45 also affirms it, and it's this. Let Christ's example capture your heart. The king himself ascended by descending. Look at the final verse. And I shared this before, but we've arrived at it. We've said a lot about Mark 10.45, but in many ways it functions like the John 3.16 of Mark's gospel account. It provides and gives us a look of, of the servant theme that is, is woven deep within the fabric throughout the entire account. It is, it is Mark 10.45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What Jesus teaches about service and self-sacrifice is not simply a principle of the kingdom of God, but a pattern of his own life that is authoritative for and transferable to his disciples. And there's a for. You'll notice that right at the beginning. It's agar in the Greek. A for at the, the beginning. And it's strongly purposed. The disciples should adopt the posture of servants and slaves, not on the basis of ethical reasoning, but because it's the posture of the Son of Man. And there's this embedded paradox within this verse contrasting the Son of Man, which we've learned in the past, is the exalted figure of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, right? A highly exalted figure with someone who would serve and someone who would give their life. And the verb serve is this ordinary Greek word for waiting on tables, right? It's not some special uh, form of service. Secret service. Some super extraordinary form of action. It's serving people like a waiter at a table. The son of man, God in human flesh, he serves the ultimate paradox if anyone who ever walked on this earth, right, should have been served, we all know who it was, right? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he could have commanded legions of angels at any point in time to, to serve him. But he didn't. Instead, he walked many miles on dusty and dirty roads serving those around him. He could have come into this world as a conquering king, he could have been in a palace. He could have had hundreds or even potentially thousands of servants, but he didn't. Instead, he was born into a humble estate. Why? He did not come to be served, 
but he came to serve. And what does this say to us? If our God is willing to serve in this capacity, should we not also be willing to serve in, in the trenches as well? Nobody should think that they're too good to get mud on their clothes if Jesus got mud on his. Jesus Christ never thought that. He got down into the mire with falling humanity so that he could give his life as a ransom for many. James Edwards writes, The life to which the gospel calls believers is not an ethical system, but the way of the Lord of which Jesus is the pattern and incarnation. This model of ministry cannot come from the secular order, but only from the unique way of Jesus, which defies the logic of this world and its fascination with dominance, control, yields, results, and outcomes. The key to the model, both incarnated and commanded by Jesus, is the verbs to serve and to give. The reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in the kingdom of God is that the sole function of a servant is to give, and giving is the essence of God, end quote. Powerful, amen. Powerful truth. And so may God cultivate a heart within us to give and to serve. As we follow the paradoxical example the, the ultimate example, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this before, with the Lord over us, no task is beneath us. Amen? With the Lord over us, no task is beneath us. The same Lord who, who took the basin, who girded his loins, who, who, who washed the mire and the muck off the disciples' feet, the lowest possible job you could have. Lowest possible job. He did it. He saved us so that we could serve him and his purposes. That's such a great expression to capture. We're saved to serve. We are saved to serve. And as we're going to learn in our second hour, we can please him as we serve. And here's where the rubber meets the road. I want you to take that insert out in your, in your bulletin if you would, the overview of Christ's passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark. And two Sundays ago, those of you who were here, you'll recall that I shared something about this chart. I said that in order for you to embrace the Lord's lessons on discipleship and for us to renounce our pride that we needed to be captured by Christ's passion. Remember me saying that? That actually served as the title of that sermon, Captured by Christ's Passion. And we have gone full circle on this passage because it ends with the same focus that it started with back in Mark 10.33. We need to let Christ's example capture our hearts. And this is what will fuel our hearts as we're led by the Spirit to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses daily, and to follow him. And to think about the reality of that denial. That denial has his purposes in mind. That, my, that denial of self has, creates opportunities for us to serve other people. And as we fix our eyes on his example, we will grow in our understanding of what it means to be a servant of all. And so here's a 
a little homework assignment for all of us. Can you turn that, can you turn that over on the back side? And you'll notice that it's blank. And that's by design. It's blank now, but it won't be. It won't be. Later today, I want you to, to take some time, and I want you to meditate on Christ's passion and his death. And then I want you to look at those vital principles down that, that he taught after each one of his predictions. I, I want you to do this. I'm going to do this. We're, we're going to do this together as a church family, okay? We don't get a whole lot of homework, and so the little that what we, we, we do get, let's go ahead and, and follow up with it, okay? I want you to do this exercise. Will you please, will you please, I'm asking you to, to honor this request. Do this exercise. And you'll look at the vital lessons on discipleship that he taught after each passion prediction. And then I want you to list 10 practical ways. Okay, I, I was going to say 20, just so you know. So I know 10 might seem like a lot, and then I was like, well, I'll say a dozen. I was just say, I'll go with 10, okay? 10 practical ways that you can apply those principles to your walk in 2017. You know what's going to happen when you do this? And, and to some degree, I'm daring you to do it in a good way. You're going to make progress in your walk. And you know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to show you ways in which you'll renounce pride of the heart. In ways that you're not denying yourself in which you could. So that you can be freed up to serve his purposes. To evangelize, to make disciples, to grow in relationships in your care groups. All of those things that he wants for you. That's what is going to happen. You're going to make progress, and you're going to increase in your capacity to serve him. How do I know this is true? Allow me to close with an amazing testimony of someone who was very prideful in their past, who committed their life to following Christ's example and truly learned what it meant to be a humble servant of the Lord it was James and John who came to the Lord asking to sit at his right and his left in this account. And John, as you know, would outlive his brother James, who would end up being martyred. He'd outlive all the apostles who were martyred for their faith in Christ, with the exception of Judas Iscariot. John would have received the news of each of their deaths as he advanced in his old age, some who were crucified, Peter crucified upside down, some who were stoned to death, James even thrown off Solomon's portico, then stoned, okay? And one of the last epistles John wrote, which was 1 John, in it he warns believers, calling them little children, because he's, he's an older guy at this point, and he says, and he warns them about the boastful pride of life in 1 John 2.16. The Lord taught John many lessons on servanthood, which no doubt led to him to choose those words. And they also led him by the Holy Spirit to include these words in 1 John 3.16 when he wrote, <clears throat> 
we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What a remarkable testimony of a man who once approached the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the end asked if he could sit in God's seat. And what did God do? God grew him over the course of his life to become a man who stayed captured by Christ's example and would forever encourage us to lay down our lives for the sake of the brethren. May our lives be marked with similar growth as we become more aware of the pitfalls of pride and as we understand the paradoxes of servanthood, Lord willing, all the days ahead. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads as a church family, again, thanking you for the instruction that has come in your word. And I know throughout this week, my heart was, was challenged in great measure as I had my own pride exposed and saw the tendencies and the inclination of my own heart to be so much like James and John, to serve my own glory and to be so selfish. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you allowed me to confess that. And I just pray that in great measure you'll use your word today to allow us all to go through this same experience, that you'll help us to see the pitfalls of pride and help us to renounce it. Help us to use your standard of greatness as we consider our lives. And Lord, they're not meant for the person to our left or to their right. They're, they're meant for each of us. And so often we can be inclined to think that someone else really needs to hear this message. And I'll be the first to confess my own heart needed it. And so Lord, guide us. Help us to consider the the reality of, of the passions, the, the prediction, Christ's prediction each and every time and allow us to meditate on the vital discipleship principles that he instructed immediately after. And I pray, Father, as we write down the lessons that we learn from this, that it will have a great impact and that we'll see a fruitfulness as a result of just this one single message, that it could have that kind of impact in all of 2017 and in the years ahead, and that we would be like John, who at one point was so filled with pride, who matured over time, and you graciously instructed and allowed him to see that there is no greater love allowed him to be captivated by Christ's love and Christ's example and has served as fuel for his entire life and ministry. May the same be said for us. We thank you.
this time. We thank you for this study. In Jesus' name, amen.